text today is in Genesis chapter 3. Let's open up to Genesis chapter 3. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, it's on page 4. Nope, page 5. First verse on page 5. Because it's verse 15. Genesis 3, verse 15. God is speaking to the serpent in Eden. And he says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Dear Lord, thank you. Thank you for being willing to be bruised as a man by your creation, Lord, in order to free all of us. I pray, Lord, again, that you would bless Paul with energy, with passion, with um, clarity of thought and of speech in all that he's speaking. And, Lord, I pray that we would hear from you, that the words that you have impressed upon him would move our hearts because we came here, Lord, to hear from you and to have an experience with you. So speak to us, Lord. Give us ears to hear and hearts to receive what you have for us this morning and use your servant Paul for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So when it comes to uh, Christmas time, there are certain texts that are often trotted out, and this is one of them. Um, So we might have what we might term an over-familiarity with a text like this, but maybe some of you not so much. Do you like my title? The Skull-Crushing Seed. How's that for a Christmas title? At first I thought, well, you know, that's a little drastic, isn't it? Um, But I thought, no, I'll I'll keep it (coughs) because um, it says something that's so important. It says something uh, that from the beginning of our problems, when our problems started at the fall, God had a solution. God had a victory that he was going to win. And he was going to win it. He wasn't going to win it for himself. I mean, nobody's going to challenge God. This idea of, of, uh, in, in most religions, you have these, uh, this like good and evil, yes? And they're both kind of equal powers. Well, please forget that. Okay? When it comes to God and Satan, like God is all powerful and Satan's a little, you know, gnat, as it were that God can get rid of at any time. So it's not about that. It's about God uh, gaining the victory for you, for you and I. This is what it's about, okay? And so in that vein, I think the title is is, uh, okay because it draws attention to Satan's demise, Okay? And Satan's demise is good news. 
But before we get to that, let me uh, say a few uh, more introductory words. So Genesis chapter 3 records the fall of man. So uh, when you open the Bible, chapter 1, everything's good, everything's good, everything's good, everything's very good. It's like, okay, paradise has been created for men and women. How wonderful Eden must have been. That, that world that God created. You know, we, we live in a world that God has, has, he's given the power of, uh, new life within the plants and the trees and, and the flowers. And we still see remnants of the glory and the beauty of the original creation, the original um, paradisical world that God made. But it's faded. I mean, not to us, because we, it's all we know. But it's faded glory. In that original glory, it must have been extraordinary. Um, the, the, the tranquility, the peace, the, the sense of belonging. Because God, if you look at Genesis chapter 1, he created all of these things. And then the last people to be created or the creatures to be created is the man and the woman made in the image of God. So creation is made for the man and the woman, for human beings. The environment is all fitted out. It's like um, God did not, he's not like a... <clears throat> A person who buys a house and turn up, turns up to it and it's not ready yet. The electric wires are hanging down and the doors are not on and there's some windows missing and the front door's not there yet and, you know, there's some holes in the floor. Um, it, it, it wasn't like that. Everything was made, as, as it were, like a home that you would open the front door and feel this is mine. This is that. This is my house. Everything furnished perfectly. Everything in its right place. That was something of what the first creation was. And in the second chapter of Genesis, it's not another creation account. Okay. Some people say that's another creation account. No, it's not. Open your eyes. Read carefully. Okay. It's what it is. Is a theological commentary on part of what happened in chapter 1. In other words, it hones in on the um, sixth day of creation. And it speaks about God planting a garden. Why do we plant gardens? And it's a, it's a garden that, that it has uh, barriers, as it were. Why, why barriers? Why fences? Well, because we like them. Because they're pleasant. Because when you go to some of the great gardens, I don't know if you've ever visited some of the great gardens, or, or just uh, like the gardens in Fort Bragg or whatever, okay? I mean, wild gardens, you get some wild gardens in England, and everything's higgledy-piggledy, okay? And everything's just allowed to grow in a certain way, and that's great. It looks fine, but still there's somebody like in control of it, yes? Somebody not like me, somebody actually knows how these things go together. But in most gardens, 
what you see is, is things that are ordered, things that are thought through. You see verges that are cut and manicured and cared for and flowers in particular places uh, contrasted with other flowers or trees in other places and then ornaments here and there. And the thing is that uh, we like order. These things are pleasing to us. And it's, as it were, it was a... Uh, it was an example that God gave to our first parents of this is the kind of thing that I want you to do with the rest of the world. The world was beautiful, but it was wild, okay, outside the garden. And I, when I say wild, I don't mean animals eating each other or poisoning th- poisonous things or uh, mosquitoes or anything like that. It was all beautiful and perfect, but it needed some ordering. Okay, it needed somebody to go out there and to manicure the lawns and to uh, not, there was no weeds to pull up. Okay, so there was none of that stuff, but just to plant this here, put this here, cut this, make it the way you want to make it. No, no uh, animal was going to come and eat you while you were trying to do that, while you had your back turned. There was no danger. Everything was peaceful. Everything was tranquil. That's the world that God intended for us. That's the world that God is going to give to us after the second coming of Jesus. But now we live in chapter 3 of Genesis, don't we? It didn't take long. You know, you turn a couple of pages and bang. There's the end of paradise. There's a sin, a sin of disobedience, a sin of high-handed disobedience to God, of not listening to God but listening to the voice of a serpent, a sin of um, irrationality because how irrational it is to, to take somebody else's advice over God's advice, a sin that plunged our first parents and then through Adam all of us into um, being dominated by sin and also by death. Corruption entered in and pain entered in and suffering entered in and confusion entered in. Um, Aging. All of these things that the history of mankind is a gruesome and painful record of. That is the world we live in. That's the world of Genesis chapter 3. And within this world, God addresses the man and he addresses the woman. The man, remember the man blames the woman? Well, he blames God too. The woman you gave me. Okay? And then the woman blames the serpent. The serpent doesn't have anyone to blame. But the serpent, there's already previous business going on between the serpent and God. And God speaks to the serpent, and uh, in verse 15, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. 
He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It's simply put, but boy, is there a lot in it. (laughs) What does that word enmity mean? Well, it means an irreconcilable, um, oh, what's the word? I can't think. Difference, yeah, well, animosity, okay? Irreconcilable animosity. And yes, there are different theories, which I won't go into now, um, as to uh, some of the things that may be hinted at in um, verse 15. But what definitely is not hinted at, but is clearly stated, is that there is enmity here between the woman and the woman's seed and That can be understood both as those that will be born, all of Eve's children, and also, of course, the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ. And Satan. Because that serpent is Satan. Romans chapter 16, I think it's verse 20. Revelation chapter 12 tell you that that serpent is Satan, the devil. So the devil is in the world and he hates you. He hates you. And he's not alone because he has a whole bunch of minions that hate you too on his behalf. They're real. They're powerful. They are influential. They are not usually manifested in the ways that we think they're manifested. You know, think of, I don't know, The Omen or one of those movies. As far as demonic, uh, you know, changing people, it happens sometimes. But you, in fact, well, it happens a lot more than, than we like to admit. I think there's a lot of it going on, but sometimes it doesn't come out. But that's for another time. But it manifests itself normally in the thinking of the world, in the, what, the decisions that powerful people make, in the, the, the choice of the ones who get to be powerful and influential, and the ones that don't. Um, in the irrationality of, of political you know, machinations, in things like just simple common sense thing is, is if, if this continent grows too much food, okay, for the population to eat, how about giving it to these people over here? You know, it's kind of simple common sense stuff, okay? If this continent doesn't have the resource or doesn't have the resources to get into because of whatever reason, uh, usually it's geographical, okay? But um, to, to, to mine or to, to industrialize or whatever, to improve the standard of living there, perhaps money could be put into that, okay? Perhaps there could be help there. Common sense stuff. Why doesn't it happen? When I was uh, younger, when I was living in England, the EU, European... Um, 
union, okay? Yes, I did say that with a bit of a smirk on my face. Um, what they were doing, they were paying farmers to plow in the food in their fields, the grain and so on. They would pay them, okay, not to, not to harvest it, but to plow it in again. Whose, whose idea was that? I'll tell you. Satan's. Satan's. Going to war here, going to war there. I know there is such a thing as just war in certain circumstances, but a lot of wars don't make sense at all. Why? Satan. He wants this world to be turned into a place of confusion and corruption and wickedness. You know, yesterday I went to the library with uh, Anne, the seven-year-old, and I said, go and choose some books, okay? So she comes back with this mountain of books, and she puts them down in front of me, and I have to go through these books. I have to look at each one. I have to, you know, uh, look at the titles, look inside to see what's there. I had to put five books back. One of the books was about astronauts. That's nice. Yeah, that's easy and no problem. Oh, no, they were lovers. Male, one male and another male. Astronauts. They put it in everywhere. One of them is, uh, I have two mummies. Who is this? Who's responsible for this? That's not the way that God created. God didn't create Adam and Steve. He created Adam and Eve. Male and female. Who's responsible for the way the world is? Who's responsible for the trouble and the pain in your life? Well, partly you are. Partly other people are. But the one who really enjoys it and likes to mix it up and make it as bad as it can be is Satan. In First John, we're warned against three things, the world, the flesh, and the devil. You understand the world, yes? The world's way of thinking, the world's way of doing things, the world's uh, way of being inhumane. The flesh, that's... That's us when we are not the people that we know we're supposed to be, okay? When we don't do what we know we should do. When we do do what what we know we should not do. That's the flesh. You're familiar with it, yes? That's sin. And then we forget about the devil. Don't forget about the devil. Because in the end, this whole history of the world is about the defeat of the devil. Yes, it's certainly, and we'll get to it, it's certainly about dealing with our sin. It's certainly about redoing the world, regenerating it. But what would be the point of redoing you and redoing the world if we didn't do something about the devil? 
and the demons. And so the first part here is that you've got to understand that the devil hates you. He's real, he's powerful, he hates you, and he uses the world and the people in the world and people maybe in your life and maybe and also your flesh, you too, if you listen to him or if you fall for his temptations. The thing is that the devil has a case, doesn't he, often against us. If you turn quickly to Zechariah chapter 3, we can see this somewhat illustrated. And it, it, uh, what it does is uh, it brings in a good news for us too. Zechariah, that's the penultimate book in the, in the Old Testament. So go to the end of the Old Testament to Malachi or to go to Matthew and then go two books uh, back. Zechariah, chapter 3. Let me read a few verses for you. Are you all there? I'll wait for the pages to stop. Crinkling? It's a great sound. Zechariah 3. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? So Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him saying, take away the filthy garments from him. And to him, he said, see, I have removed your iniquity from you and I will clothe you with rich robes. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and they put the clothes on him and the angel of the Lord stood by. The angel of the Lord is the appearance of the second person of the Trinity. He who would be born into the world and be named Jesus who is appearing next to Joshua. The Lord who is speaking and, and conducting the affairs is God the Father. Okay, remember the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Um, God, just, I'm just going to put this in there. The best way to kind of understand the rationality of the Trinity is uh, God is not isolated and alone in eternity because he's three in one. Okay, he's three in one, not like Allah, who uh, has to create something in order to have somebody to talk to or somebody to like or so on or hate. God, the Trinity doesn't need us. He created us out of love. Okay, the love, the intertrinitarian love. But look at this scene. Here's Joshua. He's a high priest, but that doesn't matter. He's still a sinner. And who's standing standing by him? Satan. Where is he standing? At the right hand. That's the hand of influence in the ancient world. So what's going to happen? Satan seems to think that he's got a good reason for being right there. He's the accuser of this man Joshua. He's got reason to be there. 
And the Lord responds and says, the Lord rebuke you. This is the angel of the Lord speaking about God the Father. The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Well, a brand plucked from the fire is one that's going to be saved from the fire. It's not going to perish. You see, somebody has to reach in and get it out of the fire, as it were. It's a picture. It's a picture of somebody who has been rescued, somebody who has been, what's the Christian word, saved. In other words, Satan, haven't I saved him? Haven't I rescued him? Now, Joshua was clothed in filthy garments and was standing before the angel. We know what the filthy garments stand for. This is a picture, okay? But the filthy garments stand for his own sins. How do we know? Let's read on. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your, what? Your filthy garments? Your iniquity, your sin. From you, and I will clothe you in rich robes, which stand obviously for righteousness. Do you see that? They even put a clean turban on his head. I'm not really into turbans, but if God chooses to put a turban on my head when I get to glory, I won't complain. So I put a clean turban on his head, and they put clothes on him, and the angel of the Lord went away deserted him the angel of the Lord uh, was done no the angel of the Lord stood by stood by him stood by him because Joshua is God's property yes Satan's still there Satan's going to you know do what Satan does but the angel of the Lord stands by. Folks, Satan hates you, but God loves you. And God is much more powerful than Satan. And God is faithful. And if you turn to God and you trust in the Christmas message of him sending his son into the world, God will save you. He will put, as it were, righteousness upon you and take your sins off you. Not that you won't struggle with sin, but as far as uh, the justice of it is concerned, God doesn't see your sin anymore. He sees his righteousness and the righteousness of his son. So that's what's going on in Zechariah. If we turn back to Genesis 3, Satan has... um, he has a, a mini victory. It's, in, it's included in this. It's a, it's a prediction, a prophecy. Satan's going to win a little battle, which appear, will appear to him to be a big battle. It will appear to him to be the whole of the war. He's going to be uh, Satan at enmity between. Uh, the woman and the woman's seed, humanity. But look in the middle there, between your seed and her seed, that's a capital S. And the reason it's a capital S is because of what comes next. He, 
He, an individual, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heels. See the pronoun. No confusion of pronouns in the Bible. So this is an individual who is being predicted. And Satan, you're going to bruise his heel. Well, obviously, this is figurative language. How is Satan going to bruise his heel? Well, let's think who this seed could be. The seed of the woman. The promised one. The promised deliverer. The one who's going to defeat Satan. Who could that be? Anyone in this room? Anyone in history? Satan is alive and well and doing, you know, he's doing pretty well in the world right now. Who is the hope? Who's the only one who is going to defeat? Obviously, it's Jesus, yes? Jesus, who is to one day, thousands of years from this time, is going to come into the world. And look how he's going to come into the world. He's going to come into the world as a defenseless baby. That is extraordinary in and of itself. He's going to become a human being. He's going to grow up as a human being to become a man. He's going to feel tiredness. He's going to feel fatigue. He's going to feel hunger. He's going to feel sadness. He's going to uh, understand what it is to toil. He's going to understand what it is to, to be in the midst of unfairness and the inhumanity of one person to another. He's going to live in this world. And in the end... <clears throat> He's going to be put to death. He's going to be put to death. And he's going to be put to death in a particular way. He's going to be lifted up so that all can gape upon him. He's going to be naked up there. As his blood runs down and he groans in pain. People are going to be wagging their fingers at him. They're going to be cursing him. They're going to be speaking all manner of offensive things to him as if he wasn't suffering enough. It was the ultimate degradation. It was the ultimate um, humiliating and painful way to die. As I've said before, the word excruciating comes from out of the cross. Ek, out of, crucio. Yes? Out of the cross. In other words, they looked at people who were crucified and they looked at the pain that they were going through and they coined a word for it. That's Satan bruising his heel. Well, you might, because this can be translated and, and I think ought to be translated crushing his heel. Crushing his heel. It's not just like a little bruise when you bang your, your heel against the bedstead or something like that. It's got to do with a, a, like a hammer blow. Now, you can recover from a bruised heel. You can still hop around. It's, it's a devastating thing. But you're going to be okay. And of course, Jesus was more than okay. He had to certainly 
be stricken. He had to die. But he would be raised again by God. So Satan has his little victory. And guess what? He's been rejoicing in it for 2,000 years. The first part of that prophecy, well, the, the, the end part, sorry, at, in verse 15, it's been fulfilled. When, when is the other part going to be fulfilled? He shall bruise your head, which means crush your head. Well, people don't tend to recover from a crushed head. Okay, it tends to be terminal. So the idea is, you'll have, Satan, your mini-victory. But you won't have ultimate victory. You are going to be utterly defeated. This is in Genesis chapter 3. And the question that we need to ask is, when... When is Satan's head going to get crushed? Some people say he was crushed at the cross. No, it wasn't. That's the bruising. That's the crushing of the heel, as it were. Satan actually doesn't get his head stoved in until the end of the millennial reign of Christ in Revelation 20. But still, this prophecy, the earliest prophecy in the Bible, basically sums up in very, very short shrift the story of creation. It's going to be restored, and it's going to be restored better than it was. And the one who's going to guarantee that it's going to be restored, never again to have this interloper come in and try to spoil things, is the one who was born in a stable, probably. The one who, you know, not many people paid any attention to whatsoever. His father and mother rejoiced over the birth some shepherds were told about it. That was about it. Later, some wise men, some magi from the east came. Not very many, though. Not many people. There wasn't much here to concern Satan, or so it seemed. When we look at the... Um, Christmas decorations. And I love Christmas decorations. I used to be. I used to be an old, uh, who's the guy in the Dickens novel? Scrooge. Scrooge. I, yeah, I used to be a bit of a Scrooge, okay? Because I lived on my own for a long time and it was like bar humbug. I don't care about all that stuff. But now I've had kids and so on. Now it's like a lot. I love it. It's really nice. And I like, I like these lights and I like the beauty of it and I like the, you know, there's something of, of a, mood in it uh, uh, that, that lifts so I'm not against inflatable Santas and I'm not against stars and I'm not against reindeers that, that you know, weirdly move their heads 
wherever you move. I'm not against any of that stuff. But let's remember, shall we, (laughs) this, what it's all about. Let's remember that the seed of the woman, the one who is going to put everything right, the one who can save you, has already come into the world, and the first part of this uh, prophecy has been fulfilled. And Jesus from the cross said, it is finished. Because it is finished, we can look back and we can marvel at what's called the incarnation. That God the Son, in order to save humanity, became a human being. Not a pretend human being, a real human being. He lived in this world, in this world that we're living in. So he's familiar with it. He's familiar with the weaknesses of people. He was without sin, but he's familiar with the pain and the trouble that people go through. The shortest verse in the Bible says, Jesus wept. He's a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. This miracle of the incarnation starts with Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. And that's, even though it's not, there's nothing in the Bible says that you should celebrate it. We can celebrate it, can't we? We can marvel at it. We can think about it. We can say this is the start of the story that is going to include me and is going to end as all stories should, with a happy ending. It is the ultimate redemptive story. And at Christmas, we can, we can start to think about that in a new way. We can start to think about what it took for the Son of God to humiliate himself so far, so much, to become a baby reared by parents to be misunderstood, to be, uh, you know, they plotted his death, to be disbelieved, and eventually to be crucified. And it ends well, because death could not hold him. He rose again from the dead. And because of that, anyone who trusts in him, anyone who trusts that he has taken our sins upon him will also have that same resurrection hope. That resurrection of Christ is shared with anyone who believes in him so that death has its teeth pulled and life has the victory. That all started, as I said, whether it was We're not exactly sure whether it was, probably wasn't December 25th. But that doesn't matter, does it? What matters is it's happened. So let's respond this Christmas season. When we, when you see the lights, when you see, um, the Christmas trees, when you see these things, whether that, it doesn't matter whether pagans have put them up or not, who cares? They're pretty. Remember that this season is special for you if you're a Christian.
God has come. Emmanuel, God with us, has claimed the victory for you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we acknowledge this amazing story of redemption. This prophecy of Satan's doom. Maybe right now he still thinks he's got the upper hand because Jesus has not returned in 2,000 years. But, Lord, what's 2,000 years to an eternal God? But we know, Lord, you're coming. We know Jesus is coming and he's coming to set up his reign that is not going to be uh, interfered with by Satan or his demons. Satan's going to be locked up. Life and joy and peace, the peace that was proclaimed by the angels, is going to pervade the whole earth. That's what Christmas is about. Help us to keep that in mind, Lord. There's a few weeks to go, but as we buy presents and think about where we're going to go and who we're going to be with, let us not forget to celebrate the incarnation of your Son. Amen.